You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode number 89 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Beginning with this episode, we'll start to look at Ulysses S. Grant's campaign in February 1862 to capture Forts Henry and Donelson. The battles for those two Confederate forts in rural northern Tennessee, just below the Kentucky border, were a crucial turning point in the course of the Civil War. The loss of the forts, which controlled the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers, fatally cracked the southern defensive line west of the Appalachians and fixed the course of the war in the Western Theater for the next 18 months. As the calendar had rolled over from 1861 to 1862, both the Union and the Confederacy were preparing for what they expected would be the pivotal year of the Civil War. Most people expected the decisive blow would be struck in Virginia, For months, Major General George McClellan had been organizing and training his Army of the Potomac in its camps around Washington, D.C. And since November, when he replaced old Winfield Scott as General-in-Chief, McClellan had also been responsible for supervising the operations of all the other federal armies. But it was still to the Army of the Potomac that all northern eyes turned, expecting Little Mac would soon use his well-trained and well-equipped army to deal a death blow to the rebellion. But McClellan's expanded authority as general-in-chief didn't seem to make him any more inclined to advance toward Richmond. Much to the dismay of President Lincoln and the Republican congressional leadership, McClellan did not seem at all disposed to march his men off the parade ground and into battle. As Republican congressmen grumbled that it was time to attack, so did the new Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, whom Lincoln had appointed to replace Simon Cameron after it became apparent Cameron was unable to effectively administer the Union's war effort. With the new year, the President ran out of patience with McClellan, famously saying that if McClellan wasn't going to use the Army of the Potomac, then he, Lincoln, would like to borrow it and see if it could be made to do something. On January 27, 1862, Lincoln issued General War Order No. 1, instructing all Union armies to move forward by Washington's birthday on February 22nd. And then several days later, Lincoln issued a second special order specifically directing the Army of the Potomac to move against the railroad supplying Joseph Johnston's Confederate Army at Manassas. But still, despite Lincoln's wishes, McClellan continued to stall. And so, while everyone in Washington was still waiting for Little Mac to move, it was actually out beyond the Appalachians, in the war's western theater, that the first federal strikes deep into Confederate territory took place. 
In the war's Western theater at the beginning of 1862, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston faced the unenviable task of having too much territory to defend and too few men with which to defend it. Johnston was trying to hold a 430-mile-long defensive line protecting Nashville, Tennessee, and the rest of the Western Confederacy. The line stretched from the Appalachian Mountains on the east to the Mississippi River and beyond on the west. Now, we're using the phrase defensive line, but you guys shouldn't be thinking of a continuous unbroken front like in France during the First World War or something. Instead, the Confederate defensive line in the West was cobbled together by occupying several strategic points. The left flank was anchored at Columbus, Kentucky. There, Leonidas Polk had built a cannon-studded fortress atop the bluffs that dominated the Mississippi at that point. On the right flank, Felix Zollicoffer had occupied and fortified the Cumberland Gap. And then, to secure the center and block the railroad that came down from Louisville, Johnston ordered Simon Bolivar Buckner to move north from Nashville and occupy Bowling Green. The initial crack in Albert Sidney Johnston's defensive line came at Mill Springs on January 19, 1862, when Federals led by Brigadier General George H. Thomas defeated a Confederate force led by Major General George B. Crittenden. Zollicoffer lost his life at the battle, and the defeat unhinged the right flank of Johnston's defensive line. Fortunately for the rebels, though, Thomas did not follow up his victory at Mill Springs with an immediate advance into East Tennessee. While Mill Springs was a setback for the South, that defeat in and of itself was not a fatal blow. That's because in the Western theater, the strategic objectives for both the Union and the Confederacy depended on the control of rivers and railroads. And since George Thomas didn't follow up his victory at Mill Springs, With an advance to Knoxville in eastern Tennessee, the battle did not immediately affect the control of a river or a railroad. And if you only get one thing from this episode, that's the one thing you need to remember, that during the Civil War, success in the West for either side depended on controlling rivers and railroads. Out West, in the land beyond the Appalachians, the people of that era depended on the region's waterways to forge connections over vast distances. They used keelboats and flatboats, and then steamboats, to carry cotton, iron, tobacco, foodstuffs, and manufactured goods. The Mississippi River and the Ohio River and their tributaries were the vast region's principal arteries of communication and commerce. As Rich just said, the key to success in the West during the Civil War depended on controlling rivers and railroads. Railroads played a vital role in the Civil War. They could be utilized to move troops and supplies, but from the very beginning of the conflict, the Confederacy was at a considerable disadvantage when it came to railroads. In 1860, the South had about about 8,700 miles of track, while the North had nearly three times that, with over 22,000 miles of track. Furthermore, many of the South's rail lines were poorly managed and equipped, and compared to the North, it had relatively few interstate lines. That's because many of the South's lines were short feeder lines designed to take cotton or other crops to depots or markets. And so those southern rail lines that did link key southern cities would become the objects of Civil War campaigns and battles. 
But here with our discussion of Forts Henry and Donelson, it was the rivers that penetrated the Confederate heartland that are the focus of our attention. Albert Sidney Johnston had three major rivers running through his department. And, unfortunately for Johnston, each of those three major rivers in his department ran north-south and so could be used as avenues of invasion by the Yankees. In his book, The Battle of Fort Donelson, James R. Knight explains, quote, For several reasons, Albert Sidney Johnston and the Confederacy as a whole was committed to a defensive posture. This meant that the three major rivers that ran through his department were his to protect. The loss of any one would be a major setback. The loss of all three would be little short of a catastrophe. Loss of the Mississippi would mean, among other things, loss of communication and resources from Arkansas, Texas, and most of Louisiana. Loss of the Tennessee would provide the Union with a direct invasion route all the way to northern Alabama. Loss of the Cumberland would allow the Federal Army to sail right into downtown Nashville. End quote. As y'all know, the Mississippi was closed off to the Federals by Confederate troops and artillery at Columbus, Kentucky, and then other fortifications were also under construction down the river toward Memphis. And so Johnston ought to have been most concerned about the other two rivers that ran through his area of responsibility, the Tennessee and the Cumberland. Those two rivers cross from southern Kentucky into northern Tennessee just a dozen miles apart, near the critical center of Johnston's defensive line, and they were, as author Shelby Foote aptly put it, quote, a double-barreled shotgun leveled at his heart, end quote. When Tennessee seceded from the Union, the state's governor, Isham Harris, had ordered that likely spots along the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers be fortified and blocked. The best, most defensible positions along the rivers were actually located over the border in Kentucky, but since the Bluegrass State was still neutral at that time, political considerations dictated that the rebel forts had to be located in Tennessee, as close to the Kentucky border as possible. The Tennessee engineers first looked along the Cumberland and settled on a spot near to the town of Dover. In mid-May 1861, a site for a battery was laid out on the west bank of the Cumberland, just a stone's throw downriver from Dover. The position was named Fort Donelson, in honor of Daniel S. Donelson, the state's attorney general, and the survey team's senior military advisor. The engineers then made their way over to the nearby Tennessee River, and after much debate, Donelson decided to locate a fortification on the river's east bank at a spot known as Kirkman's Old Landing. Despite Donaldson's decision, some members of the team still strongly objected to the spot, since it was on low ground that was dominated by hills across the river. But Colonel Bushrod Johnson, who headed the Tennessee military's Corps of Engineers, sided with Donaldson, and so in June 1861, construction began on Fort Henry, named in honor of Confederate Senator Gustavus Henry. Although sites had been chosen for Forts Henry and Donaldson, Work on both forts progressed slowly due to the low priority given to them. Tennessee had difficulty enough just raising and equipping regiments, quite aside from attempting to construct river defenses, so the state gave a low priority to the work on the two forts. And then even after the Confederacy took over responsibility for the defense of Tennessee, 
Leonidas Polk, who preceded Albert Sidney Johnston as Confederate commander in the Western Theater, well, Polk was a bit preoccupied with fortifying Columbus over on the Mississippi, so he too failed to give Forts Henry and Donelson the attention they deserved. And then, for some incomprehensible reason, Albert Sidney Johnston, even though he made the time and effort to visit other major points in his department during his first three months in command, he never once went to personally inspect Henry or Donelson. Johnston did send his chief engineer, Captain Joseph Dixon, to inspect the forts. Dixon reported that Fort Henry was located at a poor spot, but too much work had already been done to move it. And Dixon may have been the first Confederate officer to suggest building a small fortification directly across the Tennessee on the high ground that dominated Fort Henry. Dixon then moved over to Donaldson on the Cumberland and discovered that very little progress had been made on the fort there. Dixon urged that the work be pressed forward. Major Jeremy Gilmer took over as Johnston's chief engineer in October 1861. When Gilmer inspected the river forts, he too realized Fort Henry was in a bad location, but he agreed with Dixon that the site should not be abandoned. And then at Fort Donelson, Gilmer found the construction still far behind schedule. And he wanted the number of guns and the river batteries there more than doubled. He also wanted outer works constructed to defend the fort from an infantry attack. And finally, Gilmer wished to see the Cumberland obstructed to prevent or hinder the passage of Union gunboats. Gilmer then went off to see to the rest of the department's defenses. Meanwhile, at the forts, the work continued to, pro to progress very slowly. The on-site officers were hampered by an absence of firm leadership to exercise control over the defensive preparations. And then there were challenges associated with the labor force that was available. In the rural area where the forts were being constructed, it was difficult to obtain workers. There were never enough men, and although soldiers were put, put to work, many of them were incapacitated with sickness and disease. Slave labor was difficult to acquire, and even when slaves were available, the white soldiers refused to work alongside them. In November 1861, Johnston put Brigadier General Lloyd Tillman in charge of Forts Henry and Donelson. Tillman had graduated from West Point in 1836. He resigned from the Army shortly thereafter for civilian pursuits, but then served as a volunteer officer in the war with Mexico. Returning once again to civilian life, by 1858, Tillman was chief engineer for the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. Tillman was active in the Kentucky State Guard and had commanded its Western Division during the time of Kentucky's neutrality after the start of the Civil War. When Kentucky finally sided with the Union, Tillman followed his old State Guard commander, Simon Bolivar Buckner, into Confederate service. When Tillman arrived at the river forts, he was unhappy with the situation he found there. He expressed concern over the Fort Henry site and found that the work at Fort Donelson was still far behind schedule. He requested more heavy artillery and also muskets, since the infantry stationed at the forts were mostly unarmed. After his arrival, the river forts began to receive slightly more attention from the Confederate High Command, but still not nearly enough to please Tillman. Even so, by late January 1862, he was able to improve the situation at Fort Donelson by building cabins for the garrison, increasing the number of heavy guns in the water batteries, and making progress on the construction of outer works to defend against a land attack. 
Attempts were also made to obstruct the Cumberland. And then Tillman would attempt to strengthen Fort Henry's position by moving to construct Fort Hyman, which was to be a small work across the Tennessee River on the hills that dominated the low ground on the east bank where Henry had been sighted. Finally, using 35 miles of telegraph wire, he connected the forts to Cumberland City, Tennessee, the next sizable settlement upriver from Dover. With that, Tillman had done what he could to get ready for what he sensed was the inevitable Union attack on the river forts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Meanwhile, the Federals hadn't been idle. With our bonus episode on timberclads and ironclads, we've already talked about how the Union set out to build a fleet of gunboats once it was realized very early on that controlling the western rivers was going to be a crucial part of any war-winning strategy. Most of the decisions connected with the construction of the federal timberclads and city-class ironclads were made by Commander John Rogers, but in early September 1861, Rogers was relieved by Captain Andrew H. Foote, and Foote assumed command of the Union's Brownwater Navy. With the three timberclads already providing valuable service on the western waterways, on October 12th, the first of the ironclads, the St. Louis, was launched. During October and November, the remaining six city-class ironclads were completed. Work was also progressing on two ships being converted into ironclads. One of them, the New Era, was renamed the Essex, and she would play an important role in the upcoming campaign. It was in November that Major General Henry W. Halleck replaced John C. Fremont as the commander of the Department of Missouri. A West Point graduate, class of 1839, Halleck, early in his career, had been assigned to travel to Europe to study foreign military practices. On his return, he gave a series of lectures that were later published. That work and a later treatise on international law helped Halleck win a reputation as an intellectual, and during the Civil War, he was known as Old Brains. 
During the Mexican-American War, Halleck was sent to California, where he saw limited combat, but still earned a brevet for his conduct. After the war, he remained in California and became a partner in a successful law firm while still retaining his officer's commission. It was only in 1854, when he was well-established with the law practice, that he resigned from the Army. In the years that followed, Halleck grew wealthy thanks to business pursuits that included real estate and mining. When the Civil War began, Halleck returned east, and upon Winfield Scott's recommendation, Lincoln nominated and Congress confirmed Halleck's appointment as a major general in the regular Army, making him one of the highest-ranking officers in the Union Army. Halleck's first assignment was to replace Fremont as commander of the Department of Missouri, where he used his considerable administrative skills to clean up the mess left by his predecessor. And as department commander, Halleck was now Andrew Foote's and Ulysses S. Grant's commanding officer. Before he was replaced, Fremont had placed Brigadier General Grant in command of the military district at Cairo, Illinois. Once the Confederates violated Kentucky's neutrality by seizing Columbus on the Mississippi River, Grant had moved quickly from Cairo, steaming up the Ohio River to secure the Kentucky towns of Paducah and Smithland, which gave the Union control of the mouths of the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. After that, Grant became convinced that the best line of advance for the Union forces was up the Twin Rivers, since such a move, if successful, would push the rebels out of middle and western Tennessee, thereby opening a path into the Confederate heartland. Seizing control of the two rivers would also provide the added bonus of outflanking the formidable Confederate position at Columbus over on the Mississippi. Early in January, Grant asked for and received Halleck's permission to visit department headquarters in St. Louis. In his book, Where the South Lost the War, an analysis of the Fort Henry-Fort Donelson campaign, Kendall Gott explains what happened next. Quote, Grant arrived in St. Louis with his own ideas of advancing up the Tennessee and taking Fort Henry. Spreading papers and maps before his commander, he began to describe his plan. Halleck wasn't listening. The senior general cut Grant off when he saw where the discussion was heading and summarily dismissed Grant from the room. The meeting was over. In his memoirs, Grant recalled that Halleck had showed him so little cordiality that he returned to Cairo very much crestfallen. He also added, I perhaps stated the object with less clearness than I might have done. End quote. But the problem wasn't with Grant. It was with Halleck. Halleck had already been thinking of such an advance, and he didn't want to be lectured on operational options by a subordinate, especially not Grant. Even though the two had never met before, Halleck had apparently already formed a strong, negative impression of Grant based on the stories of Grant's drunkenness in the pre-war army. Grant was troubled by his disappointing interview with Halleck, but the senior general's rudeness wasn't enough to dissuade Grant, who wanted to strike the enemy and believed the Twin Rivers were the place to do it. On January 28th, Grant, by telegraph, again communicated with Halleck, seeking permission to move up the Tennessee River against Fort Henry. Grant's request was supported by Foote, who sent a similar message to Halleck. And on February 1st, Halleck wired from St. Louis, telling Grant, quote, Make your preparations to take and hold Fort Henry. I will send you written instructions by mail. End quote. A combination of factors apparently helped Halleck change his mind. 
President Lincoln and General-in-Chief George McClellan had been urging Halleck and Brigadier General Don Carlos Buell, the neighboring department commander, to coordinate their moves against the Confederates in Tennessee. And then McClellan let Halleck know that PGT Beauregard was reported to be coming west with 15 regiments. The rumor was half true. Beauregard was coming west, but with no infantry. At any rate, the pressure from Lincoln and McClellan and the thought that Beauregard would soon bring significant numbers of reinforcements west, it was apparently enough to convince Halleck to give Grant and Foote the go-ahead to attack Fort Henry. So while Foote, now Flag Officer Foote, got his boats ready, Grant assembled his forces for the offensive. Grant wanted to move as quickly as possible before Halleck changed his mind. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Forts Henry and Donelson, The Key to the Confederate Heartland by Benjamin F. Cooling. You can find Cooling's book and all of our other book recommendations if you go to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And also on the website and on Facebook and Twitter, you can find a photo of Rich and I when we were at Chautauqua Park in Boulder yesterday. So if you want to put faces to the voices you hear on the podcast, you can do that. And if you follow us on Facebook, you know that this past week, I fessed up to making a mistake near the end of the last show when Tracy mentioned the Battle of Shiloh, and then I, with just a slip of the tongue, said the battle took place at Shiloh Landing, when I meant to say Pittsburgh Landing, there along the Tennessee River. So there you go. And then as we wrap things up, we want to be sure to thank Peter S. from New York and Ronald G. from Denmark for their donations this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks, as always, to Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music we use at the beginning and end of every show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time when we look at the attack on Fort Henry. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.